good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, or late afternoon, or early morning, or pre-dawn people. I mean, all over this globe, we're in something like a 190 countries, and so it gets kind of confusing. So, good morning, world. Maybe I should be saying that, because uh, at least half the world is in morning. Um, this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening is going to be a very interesting show. We're going to talk about water. I mean, water is something that we take so for granted, at least those of us in the first world. In the third world, water is a very precious commodity, and, and uh, clean water, filtered water, water that won't kill you is even more important. But in the first world, the developed world, the 21st century technological world, water is its so ubiquitous, it's so available, it's so cheap, I mean, unless you buy the bottle stuff that we don't even think about the extraordinary properties of water. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the properties of water that you may not know about. In fact, a lot of people don't seem to know about it. We're going to talk about it in two phases. The technological part. I mean, did you know that water can, can have a technological application? And then we're, later in the morning we're going to talk about the biological part. That's where my two guests come in. Um, but before we get to my guest, I want to talk about something briefly, which kind of fits in because it's about frequencies. Ultimately, it all comes down to frequencies in the ether or the zero point field or the torsion field, all names for the same stuff. So let me go to the other side of midnight.com. Everyone who's following along, please click on that. And um, my first item tonight, if you click on the banner for tonight's show, Water, water everywhere. Click on that, and that will take you to tonight's show page, guest page. Scroll down to Richard's items. Computer scientists may have solved the mystery behind the sonic attacks in Cuba. Now, you may wonder, why is that a story tonight leading off our, our, our show? And it's because it's about frequencies. What a couple of three guys at, uh, in Miami, at the University of Miami, seem to have figured out is that the Cubans are responsible, after all, for the bizarre audio and brain-scrambling biological effects that's been uh, encompassing our diplomats, some Canadian diplomats, a few other people. I guess they have maybe like 50 people now who have been subjected to some bizarre uh, phenomenon, some bizarre technology. And if you click on the story, it turns out that these guys have figured out that it's probably malfunctioning bugs. And I'm not talking about cockroaches. I'm talking about, you know, intelligence plants in hotel rooms, in homes, in uh, other places. And the way they figured this out is that the one place that did not experience any of this stuff going on, weird stuff, where People would walk across the room and they would have this piercing thing in their head. And when they had MRIs done, there were actually brain changes. And, but when they backed up a few feet, um, it wasn't there. It was like it was partitioning a room. But it was only in one hotel, two hotels, I think, and a couple other places, but not in the U.S. Embassy. So by the process of elimination, they realized that the Cubans could not get into – this is the Cuban you know, intel folks – the the you know, black ops people, whatever the equivalent of the Cuban CIA is, they couldn't get into the embassy. Like the, the Russians got into our embassy in Moscow many, many years ago, we were building it. And so they were unable to plant bugs in the embassy. So by 
the process of default, these guys at the university, and you can read the whole story, and you go to my, my items in, the, uh, in Radio with Pictures, they figured out that it was <clears throat> multiple bugs that in their malfunctioning were emitting signals in the ultra-high, beyond-human hearing range that were cross-modulating. They were getting beat frequencies. So apparently the lower beats were in the audio range and they were at the level of debilitating power. Now, I don't know whether I buy the story totally, but it's plausible, it's interesting. So go read the story because ultimately it's all about frequencies. And that, of course, is what uh, we're going to talk about tonight. Frequencies and water. And the relationship between water and frequencies in the ether or the zero-point field or the torsion field and how this all relates. By the way, before we get into the show tonight, I do want to give a shout-out to Tom Ballone. It's Tom Ballone's birthday today. And I did get uh, my first guest this morning through Tom Ballone. He said, uh, Maury would like to really you know, talk to you about this stuff. And I said, I'd love to because I've been wanting to talk to Maury for years and years. So without further ado... Let me introduce you to my first guest, Maury King, Maury B. King, has a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, a master's degree in systems engineering, and he finished the coursework for his Ph.D. in systems engineering all at the University of Pennsylvania. Back during the oil embargo of 1974, many of you in the audience don't remember 1974, uh, we do, he learned about the existence of something called the zero-point energy field in mainstream physics literature, and then began researching the possibility that this field could be tapped as a practical non-hydrocarbon energy source. From the standard scientific literature, it appeared that excess energy anomalies were observed in pulsed plasma experiments. And we'll define what plasmas are and all that as we go through the morning, especially in the area of ball lightning. Maury took leave from the university in 1979 when he was invited to join Earring Research Institute in Provo, Utah. For practical employment, Maury engaged in software engineering at both the university and commercial software industries, and he has established about 40 years of zero-point energy research at numerous energy conferences and has published four books on the topic of how the zero-point field can be harvested via technological means. And we have his books listed. We've got, uh, I think there's a, there's a website listed. Maybe there's not a website. If there isn't, there can be, because Kinthea is on tap. She's standing in the wings. Actually, I think Kinthea may join us later in the morning. She's got a couple of interesting uh, questions that she'll want to pose, probably when Keith Perry joins us. And we'll talk about Keith Perry in a couple of hours. So without further ado, Maury King, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's actually an honor to be here with you. I've, I've heard you speak, and, and you've been marvelous and inspiring. Well, thank you. Okay, where should we begin? Um, we have a lot of illustrations posted for you tonight in Radio with Pictures, but before we get into all that, I mean, you were basically being trained to be a squeaky clean mainstream you know, science guy. And apparently, according to what I was reading this afternoon, during the major oil crisis of 74, when there were huge gas lines, you looked out your window at the university and kind of mused either aloud or to yourself, is this the best we can do? 
Well, what actually happened was uh, my roommate was um, studying physics, general relativity, about the same time, and he opened up uh, the big book called Gravitation, Meisner, Thorne, and Wheeler, and he showed me the last two chapters of the book, which was Wheeler's Theory of Geometrodynamics, mm-hmm. which talked about uh, this energetic substrate to the fabric of space. Now, I'm, I'm a graduate student in uh, system engineering, and I never heard of such a thing. And I was absolutely intrigued. And, and I did, uh, I asked the professors at the engineering school, have you ever heard of anything like this? Not one professor in the engineering school had heard of it. And it turns out I had to go talk to physics professors to find people that, that knew about it. And my first thought was, well, can this be tapped as an energy source? And uh, that got me started asking that very question. Because that theory uh, talked about extraordinary potential energy there embedded in the fluctuations of the fabric of space. And depending on which of the various theories of the vacuum that you, that you would study, different possibilities would open up. And as I talked to the professors, the physics professors, they, uh, they explained, oh, these are just random fluctuations. And random things just have to always stay random. So we pretty well just decide to uh, just ignore it or re- renormalize it away. That's their mathematical calculation to make most of it disappear. And they can get a little bit when they want, want to in their equations. And they, therefore, not, nothing can really come of it. And it was 1977 that Ilya Prigogine won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, mm. but it was for a theory in, in systems, in systems theory, that says under certain circumstances, a chaotic system, a random chaotic system can evolve from randomness, from chaos, to self-organization. And he described three principles under which if a system manifests these principles, then they can start to exhibit exhibit self-organization and lo and behold those three principles ended up matching some of the theories of the zero point energy and that's what i would, was going to base my phd thesis on applying pringagine systems theory principles and i was in systems engineering and by the way those principles are basically number number one uh be far from equilibrium uh be a nonlinear system and um, and have a some type of flux, some type of flow associated with the system. Okay, like, let's, like, let's let's stop for a moment. Let's define some things. What is a nonlinear system? Well, linear systems uh, follow a, a more simplistic set of equations where you can start to predict. Uh, the, that the behavior of the total system would be the sum of the parts. Uh, th- think of it that way. A nonlinear system can have cross interaction between the components in the systems, and depending how they interact, you can get these synergistic type behaviors, unpredictable type behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, and so it turns out in nature, most systems are actually nonlinear, but but as approximations to make them to do easy calculations, they can be. Uh, 
described as linear systems and often as part of the calculation machinery that we learn in engineering math, and, and, it's, and they do it in physics too, you linearize the compli these complicated equations so you can do practical calculations. Okay, let's bring it to a level where everybody's kind of familiar. Let's talk about audio. We're on radio, you know, people have audio, they have, you know, little, little dials to turn up volume. A linear system in radio would be I turn the dial up twice as high and the sound volume goes up twice as much, right? Correct. But a nonlinear system would be if I turn the pot, which is short for potentiometer, the little dial that is to the audio level, if I turn it up twice as high and the volume goes up 10 times the level. And, uh, or you may touch a different dial and all of a sudden it goes up 100 times on, because it's interacting with a separate ah, dial. I see. Okay. So that's the nonlinearity. Non What's the equilibrium part? Equilibrium is, is what our typical system tends to do is just settle down to the, its lowest energy state and, and, and stays there. Imagine like a pendulum swinging back and forth, gradually decaying down, right? And, it's, and it finally decays down and stops. That's the equilibrium point. Okay. The, the point where, where, where it stops. So to, basically, you have to take that system and give it a good kick to drive it off of equilibrium. Hmm. And, and that's where the pulsing comes in when we talked about pulse plasmas or pulsing events. That drives the system off of equilibrium and also drives the vacuum itself into a, off of equilibrium. And it, and it, well, let's, and not, let's not get ahead of ourselves because we're not introducing vacuums yet. I'm just trying to understand. In, in normal everyday experience, people encounter equilibrium. They encounter nonlinear systems, but they don't recognize them because they don't come with labels, right? And it's very, it's very typical. It's the quiet world. That's an interesting term, the quiet world. Where did that come from? Yeah, I, I just described it intuitively. Huh. Okay. Unlike us, we, we are the noisy world. Okay. So you're looking at these systems and you're trying to figure out, is there a way that this, this kind of permeating background of reality used to be called in the 19th century, the ether, when the quantum guys got involved with physics, it became the zero point. Zero point meaning the what? The equilibrium? Ab zero point means absolute zero degrees Kelvin. The concept of absolute zero, which means absence of all heat, all matter, all light, all radiation. What's the nature of the pure fabric of space itself. Okay, so in classical physics, when you cool something down, 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 down to zero, all energy, all motion, all exchange of energy should stop. Is that the idea? Correct. But in quantum and mechanics, there's something left over. There's like a, like a burbling beneath the surface. I think Wheeler called it the quantum foam. Correct. That's, that's going that on. And so, in a way, the, that brought that's a, a model, a very powerful model of the ether, or, or what is the substance? What is what is the fabric of space? Is it a pure void, or is there something there? And this this gives a very interesting uh, window in physics, in actual science. As you pointed out, in the 17th and 18th century, they just assumed an ether was there. It was modeled like a hydrodynamic models, like, like liquid. That's how they would model it. And it like, would support like, the like, like, like waves in a fluid. 
water or yes. something else. Right, and and that's why the uh, vocabulary of electromagnetism uh, comes from the 17th and 18th century, and the vocabulary describes uh, like hydrodynamics vocabulary, ah. flux and flow and sources and sinks. The vocabulary came from the ether theory. That was their model. So in 1905, Einstein introduces uh, special relativity. This was a huge paradigm shift because it, it, would, it would say that the nature of space itself would, would start to become flexible and, and rubbery. It used to be in the classical physics, it was a pure backdrop of space, a pure uh, linear progression of time. And all of a sudden when relativity became introduced, they, uh, they had the things flexible. But to have an ether existing in this, where the laws of physics would be the same no matter how you would move. So if you're moving in a rigid ether, you would, if you move relative to it, you would presumably feel the wind, the ether wind. That's what they called it. Mm-hmm. And another person... So there, would be, so there should be relative motion between a body moving through space and the ether, which was space itself. Right. And so if you had a very simplistic model of the ether, where the ether was rigid and just stood, stayed there, then bodies move, different bodies moving at different speeds in it would then be able to detect a different wind speeds. It would be like, like the wind. They didn't go into more complicated hydrodynamic models like what if, what if the ether hugged the planet that was moving? So at the surface of the planet, you didn't see much of a wind, mm. but if you got up higher, you could start, which is what happens. In, in other words, what if the planet? ether was sticky and it coated the earth or planets or stars in it with a film so that it was really a separation film between the stationary background ether and the moving stuff that's right around the planet? Right. Now, Dayton Miller was a famous experimental scientist. He was the head of the American Physical Society. And he repeated the famous Michelson and Morley experiment, which was done at sea level, which said, we don't see any ether wind here. And, and, or, but they did see something small. It wasn't zero. They did see something small. Michelson, uh, Dayton Miller repeated those experiments with his interferometer 10 times larger. And when he did his experiments at sea level, and by the way, he did work with Michelson as well. Mm-hmm. Hang, hang on, hang on one second. Michelson Morley did this very famous ether experiment, which involved mirrors and the Mount Wilson Observatory, which is like 6,000 feet over Los Angeles. And they bounced light waves from Mount Wilson to a mirror like 20 or 30 miles away and back. And they tried to measure in various directions the motion of the Earth relative to the stationary ether. Dayton Miller, you know, uh, he did his in Ohio, I believe. <clears throat> there aren't very many mountains in Ohio. I know I lived in, in Indiana. And he did his at sea level, and he got interestingly different results, not only because of the sea level difference, but also because of the way his experiment was configured, right? Well, the, uh, it's it, the, uh, interesting that you had the, the, the places and things like that. The, the little, it's a little bit mixed up, but there's a great reference if, uh, in an overview article, Dayton Miller's Ether Drift Experiments by James DeMail. Mm-hmm. And if you just Google Dayton Miller uh, with Orgone, he's on the Orgone site, you'll get to this paper. 
and and I learned I learned what I'm about to tell you from his talk and from this paper. Uh, that that what uh, Dayton Miller actually went up high on the mountain, and and then by getting up high, he started to see a bigger drift. Oh, and that's where he's proposed. You did not rule out the ether drag theories. All you did was rule out the very simplistic static ether theories with the original Michelson and Morley experiment. And and he with the more sensitive interferometer. Uh, he was seeing the, this drift phenomena that would would be, would fulfill the model that the ether could be dragged along with the body, and so uh, it opened up the possibility now for a complex ether. The problem was the scientific community did not want this complexity because there's one thing that Einstein did with relativity, and, and this is the reason why relativity was so overwhelmingly accepted by the physics community when it was introduced, is he unified the electric field with the magnetic field. And the, uh, the unification wa was, was compelling. It was uh, just a miracle that the equations worked out so well that the, uh, the magnetic field is basically the relativistic contraction of the electric field. It's a relativistic effect. Hmm. And I was astounded as a sophomore in field theory to see how well that matched up perfectly with, with the equations of, of electromagnetism, that this unification was, was absolutely compelling. And the physics community says, this has to be right. This, this, this models it so well that you unified the electric field and the magnetic field. And that is what gave traction. And it was so much easier to do calculations and do physics if we could just ignore the ether. Well, wait, wait. When, you say easy, when you say easier to do, you mean we're way back in the area of pencils and paper and blackboards. No oh, computers. Sure. And, and, and no, com no complex vacuum to explain. Uh, when you can remove and say, we don't have to even consider the ether or consider the vacuum dynamics or anything. We just ignore that. And physics becomes so much simpler. Calculations become so much simpler. Things become elegant that you can compute things so easily. And it so, gives you the illusion that you, you nailed so, so Maury, the theory of everything. Are you saying that basically relativity took the field because of laziness on the part of physicists? No, I think it was more like a recognition of elegance. This unification was oh, spectacular. Oh, they got snowed by elegance. Uh, yes. Who was it who I, talked about beautiful equations? Was it Feinberg or one of those guys talked yeah. about the elegance, the, the beauty of, of an equation? And, of course, it's all a construct of the mind, and it has little relation sometimes to reality. I mean, reality well, yeah. sometimes is very messy. And, and it's, it's like a belief. It, it really, it's a paradigm. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the Platonic view, and Plato had this perfect perfection view, that the, the, that the Lord set up a perfect universe, and it has perfect laws, and they're, and they're simple, they're not that complicated, and, and we can understand it. We can get on top of that. That was the belief of the golden age of physics. Well, wait, 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 when, wait, wait. You, you caught up another memory here. Doesn't this then largely go to the foot of a guy named Lord of Occam, 
a guy in England in physics, Occam's razor, the idea that the mm-hmm. simplest explanation is the is the right explanation or or the preferred and and that's really I look at it as an engineer and I says it's easier to do do things calculate things if if you can do it simpler so it's preferred it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be right it just means it it makes it way easier to to develop and build on it to to, uh, to especially engineering engineering is always about approximations mm-hmm. And you don't require perfection. But physicists aren't engineers. Physicists deal in theory. They deal in experimental observation. They don't build stuff. Sometimes they build experiments to test a theory, but they're basically a hands-off type of guy, whereas you're an engineer, and you're looking at how do you make a real system which works, and approximations engineering are done all the time. So you're basically saying it was this, this blinded by elegance that forced well, the whole yeah, scientific it, community into the relativity field, ignoring it's, it's, the real it's, complexities. Right. It's really um, it's it's a paradigm of, um, of it really there's beauty. If you have a it's a philosophy. You have a philosophy. I can predict the real world with a simple set of equations, and and you start to master those equations. That that's the thrill. You see, you see that mindset. It's it's a paradigm. It's we. It's it's the platonic uh, ideal, and we believe that uh, uh, as a community of let's say physicists, we've nailed it. We've understood the, the reality of the world. Didn't last very long, by the way, because 1905 is when special relativity got introduced. 1930, quantum mechanics starts to come into play mm. and there they have they're trying to explain things that classical physics can't explain and einstein like, freaks out because he can never re- resolve the paradoxes between relativity and quantum theory oh we'll, we'll get into that the, the, the quantum theory was a mind-blowing paradigm and guess what triggered it was why doesn't the electron negatively charged and the proton uh, why don't they just attract each other and come together, right? Okay, get- this, hang on. For folks that aren't, you know, scientists, this is the idea that you have in the simplest element, hydrogen. You've got a proton as the nucleus. You've got a little electron orbiting around it. And in classical physics, <clears throat> 19th century, you know, on, on up till 1905, that attraction should result in the electron spiraling into the proton and disappearing as and, it radiates its energy away and as it, it accelerates and spirals on. Yeah, it doesn't happen. So that that is the primary thing that ushered in quantum mechanics, and then to make the equations of quantum mechanics correct and match what the observations of nature were, they noticed there was always this residual fluctuations, the uncertainty principle, fluctuations, and it was direct who derived and modeled that the source of those fluctuations was the fabric of space itself. Mm. And from that postulate arose quantum electrodynamics, one of the most successful quantum field theories that uh, mankind has ever, ever done as far as matching experiments and, and that sort of thing. It was, was the breakthrough, but it required now this underlying substrate in the fabric of space itself, these fluctuations, basically 
the fabric of space became populated again. We have the ether back again. But now this ether is far more powerful ether than the original hydrodynamic model, which was fluid-like. This was a turbulent plasma ether, a turbulent plasma, meaning I have two types of charges, many positive and many negative charges in turbulence all the time. This is the quantum foam, the quantum backdrop. This is extremely powerful model for the vacuum and for for the fabric of space and this it, for the physics community has accepted this as existing and and thus we have a 25 year gap in the history of science uh the ether leading up to 1905 from 1905 to 1930 empty space is viewed as empty from 1930 on we have the quantum vacuum, the quantum electrodynamics, the, the fluctuations in the vacuum energy, and the quantum foam. We have a powerful ether moving mm. forward from 1930 I'll on. Tell you what, hold it there because we're at the bottom of the hour. <clears throat> My guest this morning is Maury King, who's an electrical engineer. And what we're going to talk about as we can pass the break is how you take this seething underlying fabric of space, this turbulent ocean to bring in water as a metaphor here and you basically do with it what you can do with any other seething energy source you tap into it you somehow make it available for technological acquisition and utilization you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland we shall return You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. 
Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the Bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And welcome back on this Saturday night, on the 3rd of March. The year is marching on, 2018, the year of disclosure. My guest this morning is Maury King, who's an electrical engineer. And what we're going to talk about now, and uh, I'll do that when I do that, is how do we tap into this, uh, this field? How do we take a burbling, constant, seething vacuum and you might want to, Maury, talk about the energies that are apparently available in this vacuum, which are staggering by any normal human comparison. I mean, we're talking about not just nuclear-level energies, but supernova-level energies that are in every cubic inch surrounding us. And the problem is, how do we get to it? Right? Yeah. So that those huge calculations were, were done by Wheeler in geometrodynamics. And what he did was he just applied the, theory, the equations of general relativity to the, uh, the, the equations describing what the vacuum fluctuations uh, have to be to make quantum mechanics self-consistent. When he applied the equations together, it, the, the energy densities would go up so high that space would pinch off. And that pinching off effect like a black hole, he called a wormhole. He was the one to coin that, that phrase originally when he did these calculations in the 50s. Mm. And, and basically what this implies is that the energy flux itself comes from uh, higher dimensional space and it intersects our three-dimensional space at right angles. Now, to picture what I just said, you have to pretend you're a flatlander. Imagine being confined to a tabletop, and all you can do is look out across the table, and you have no awareness of up and down against the table. And, and, and so if you were 
a flat lander and a sphere started to intersect the plane or the, or the table you were in, you would start to see a little circle and it would just gradually grow and then shrink as the sphere penetrates the plane. So it appears that something's popping in and then leaving, popping in and leaving. And that's what, what the, the model of geometric dynamics shows. It's called the orthogonal flux model of the zero-point energy. And the reason why... So, wait, 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 wait. so Wheeler basically created a hyperdimensional physics model of space. He did, but it wasn't his creation. It was Einstein's creation because because Einstein had that as part of general relativity. Yeah, but didn't he take his ideas from a guy named Ryman and his geometry of space and all that? Correct. He Einstein used the mathematics mathematics of, of Riemann geometry to to describe this curvature. But when you have something a three space curving curving into what mm. you can always model. Any uh, curvature of, of a space as embedded into a higher dimensional space as, as an intuitive way of seeing it. And nowadays, uh, it's readily acceptable that higher dimensions of physical space exist. Back when Wheeler was proposing the work and back when I was uh, using it and advocating it, uh, most uh, of the physics community did not believe that th these higher dimensions could exist. It was just their beliefs that's blocked them. But the equations were continuing to drive, drive home that point. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Back in the 19th century, there was a book called Mr. Abbott in Flatland. Or... Yes, Flatland. Yeah, but that was 19th century. That was even before relativity. Correct. And they just and that, a lot of the uh, a lot of the modeling of the ether was proposed that way. That that the ether would would have uh, sources and sinks. That's why the charge source it would it come in and expand out, uh, like as 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 a uniform flux, like a growing expanding from a sphere, like a source. But where did it come from? Where did that expansion come from, that electric flux? Well, they would model it as coming from a higher dimensional space. So these models of higher dimensions were, were really a throwback to the modeling attempts of the ether mm. uh, back in the 17th and 18th century. It was the belief and the complexity of that model that, that the physics community wanted to discard it. It makes it too complicated. That have to, you, people are very disturbed if something could just pop into your space. Like, like, <laughs> well, like yeah. A flying saucer just pop in, right? That, that would be very disturbing. They don't like that. They would rather not have this interaction between uh, these parallel planes, these, these interactive. Now, wait, wait. Uh, now we're back to physicists as lazy people who don't want to com complexify their equations because. It's more complex to try to figure out a hyperdimensional model of reality than a normal well, 3D model. In fact, it gets so complex. If you were to try to model the vacuum, individual vacuum fluctuations themselves as entering our three-dimensional space and having interactions with the elementary particles and ortho rotating, in other words, twisting some of that energy into oh, our three-dimensional space. That's where the torsion is, comes from. Exactly. When you start to spin, that's why it's a torsion field in the Russian. Uh, right. Lexicon. The, Rus the Russians went ahead and kept modeling. They 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 got traction on their models, but the complexity of 
predicting that and making equations to follow that, it, it becomes overwhelmingly untenable because how can you predict when something will happen and when it won't? Okay, like, let, me, let me take a little detour. Were they kind of partially forced into this because of the lack of computers? They had pencil and paper, basically. Or was it because of a philosophical perspective, which we talked about in the last half hour, and if it's, if, it's, if it's practical, if it's just lack of computer power, will we be able to really model this multidimensional, higher-dimensional interaction with uh, quantum computers and the computer advances that are on the horizon for the 21st century? Well, uh, from a practical standpoint, and being a computer guy, uh, you have to make simplifying assumptions where certain things just have to assume they're not coming in and they're not interacting. Otherwise, trying to model everything, every possible thing, you're overwhelmed with, with an astronomical mo uh, number of particles and number of things interacting together that it becomes completely untenable even to set up a computer program to try to model all that. Well, wait a minute. So, then, you're, you're, then, you're, then you're saying, Maury, that we can't really ever grasp reality. Um, in all its detail, um, I guess we're going to have to grow more to do that. Hmm. But that's right. We cannot grasp every single little vacuum fluctuation. We always, to engineer anything... We always have to make simplifying assumptions, and we have to assume certain regions are quiet and they're not going to pop up vacuum energy interactions, and certain regions that we stimulate will bring in some vacuum energy interactions where we would get a net energy gain. Okay, so, just to, so, so folks can kind of see where we're going here and where we come from. We start out in the 19th century, people like Maxwell were actually modeling their electrodynamics with 20 quaternion equations that were hyperdimensional. And then we get to a period where physicists want simplicity. Then we get to quantum theory, which gets us back to complexity. And now we have a state where, well, it's there, but we can't really model it because it's too complex for us to, to do with computers. Where does the technological part come in? Because I know an awful lot of guys, even when, when zero point fluctuations first kind of surfaced, they always said categorically, well, it's there, but we can never tap into it. It's like having a huge waterfall, but we can't put a turbine in it because there's no way to put a turbine under the waterfall. And your work now for 40 years has been how to create the turbine to, to basically tackle that stream, right? Right. So how and did you go from theory to your first experiment, your first gadgets, your first technology to try to do what everybody said in the physics community could not be done? Well, I didn't really do the experiments. I read about the experiments. I looked for where the anomalies were. So you looked at all the literature, all the people reporting all the stuff, you know, and it's easier now with Google and with the internet and all that, but you basically started a paper search looking for guys that were reporting data in their experiments that did not fit conventional models, right? Yes, and I, I kind of knew where to look because uh, the, I was studying the, the vacuum polarization of the elementary oh, particles. Okay, you got to define that. What the hell is polarization? Right. So if we have a, we have a turbulent plasma and if we have uh, like a charged entity, like a proton or an electron, the, the plasma itself, the vacuum 
quantum foam will polarize, will have a little charge separation, a little bias. Uh, imagine little tiny um, uh, dipoles. Is dipole a good word? Uh, because that's the fabric of space. The charges tend, to, the, the positive charge will tend to attract the, ele- uh, the negative towards it. Well, dipole is easy. Di is yeah. two, pole is a pole, so with the dipole, you got two poles, two different things. Right, it's, and that's what they mean by vacuum polarization. You're, you're aligning this quantum foam, putting a little organization into it. And, and that's the description in, in the physics literature of the elementary particles. They're con- every particle is constantly intertwined with the dynamics of the, of the vacuum fluctuations itself. And there's a polarized vacuum, which is a bias, which is a self-organized bias. And there's the key thing. It's organized. It, there's a not fluctuating. Hmm. And that, uh, in the midst of all the fluctuations, there's a residual organization there. And it's in that organization where, where it's coherent. That's the coherence that occurs, and it's described in, in the literature. And there's two, the descriptions of the two types of particles. Um, the ions, I'll get into it, that's the nuclei, the heavy particles, the protons mm-hmm. in the heart. They have steep lines of vacuum polarization converging on them. Electrons, on the other hand, especially electrons and wires and conductors, they're described as a smeared charge cloud across it. There's no steep lines of polarization at all. It's like the vacuum fluctuations are in thermodynamic equilibrium with this cloud. And thus a normal... Wait, 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 Maury, that's one hell of a mouthful. You lost me. You got to you got to simplify things for for those of us who just turn on radios by turning on a switch. Okay, so I guess the phrase was thermodynamic equilibrium. Yeah, and that was the confusing phrase, which is Pringagene's phrase. So, for forgive me for going back to my thesis ideas. So that basically, uh, when you're it's immersed in fluctuations and it's smeared out. This is the electron cloud because that's how they describe it in, in conductors. Uh, the, the fluctuations don't influence it much. It's just, they just, they, nothing much happens. There's no interaction. That's what it means by equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Not, not much is happening. And thus, normal circuits with normal electron flow are, would not be expected to produce uh, vacuum energy, net energy gains. And that's our typical technology today is those type of circuits. So you typically would not expect or, or even see experimentally normal circuits producing free energy, just your normal electrical circuits. Mm. So wait, wait, or, hang on, hang on. So that means that even if we're surrounded by this reality of huge amounts of energy, normal electrical and electronic gadgets that engineering has produced for the last 100, 150 years wouldn't see it because the very substance of what they work on, which is electron flow, is by the engineering of the universe designed not to show this hidden energy. Right. It doesn't really interact. Oh, my God. And that's why they can ignore it. However, there is a particle that does, and that's the proton or any nucleus uh, of an atom. That has steep lines of polarization converging on it. Thus, if you abruptly move a proton or abruptly move uh, a nuclei or a group of them together, there is a coherent effect 
that that causes that some of that vacuum energy to ortho rotate into our space, which means in that orthogonal flux model, that jerk of, of ions can push some of that vacuum energy to align into our space and it manifests as excess energy. Okay, so let's, let's go back to normal electrical engineering, which basically is electrons flowing in wires, right? Uh huh. But if you have a charged cloud of nuclei and electrons freely moving around but not connected, i.e. a plasma, now you've got something that is a detector kind of for this zero-point field because all the nuclei have this sharp polarization compared to the electrons floating around through the cloud at the same time. Correct. And if we jerk, abruptly move those nuclei, or oscillate those nuclei, uh, excess energy manifests. So that was the clue to where to look. You look at the plasma experiments where oh. ions are oscillating, ions are involved, ion vortexes are involved, which can make huge effects. See, now in the 70s, the Russians were doing a lot of plasma work, a lot of plasma experiments. The uh, U.S. guys, not so much, but the Russians really went into this. And they reported all kinds of interesting anomalies. Now, here's my question. In the simplest plasma, which is a hydrogen plasma, where you take a cloud of hydrogen, you heat it so that the electrons are free from the protons and the nuclei, and you now got this evenly charged but separated charged cloud, this plasma, the protons weigh almost 2,000 times the electrons. How do you selectively jerk or manipulate or move the protons without the electrons going totally nuts? Well, the electrons, the electrons will interact, and sometimes they go totally nuts uh, with excess energy, what they call runaway electrons, because they're responding to what the protons have generated hmm. when they're jerked. How do we jerk? Abrupt discharge, abrupt electrical discharge, like a lightning bolt oh, or a capacitive my. Mass capacitive discharge into a which plasma. Is the, which is the definition of an incredibly nonlinear event. Bingo. Okay, I'm getting a feel for the organism now, as somebody once said. Continue, please. So that that was that was the clue. I knew what where to look for in the experiments, and sure enough, they would see the anomalies on these abrupt pulse plasma events, uh, which would jerk. The, the nuclei, also they would see them in oscillations of the nuclei, which they called the ion acoustic mode of the plasma. So I was really looking for, under that, that search term, I think back then in the 80s, I was looking for, for uh, ion acoustic resonance, actually in the 70s too, looking for literature on plasma experiments under those conditions because mm. they were jerking the ions did you did the, you happen to encounter a guy named alf vane hans alf vane who wrote the yeah, book on famous, plasmas yeah famous plasma uh physicist oh, countryman of mine he was a Swede, and actually he gave me one of his books i met him in california incredible you to meet like a like a like a like a god he was a nobel prize winner you know plasma physics he gave me one of his books one of his textbooks hans wow. alf vane well, congratulations. That, that was an honor. 
Um, by the way, I would like to mention something, uh, a bit of synchronicity uh, for me, because the, the person who stressed the importance of plasma oscillations in his tubes, who, who made a actual free energy device in the 1920s. Are we was, talking, when you say tubes, you mean vacuum tubes? Plasma tubes. Like, 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 like neon signs. Well, we're actually having a lot of plasma, like you talked about, a lot of nuclei in there, mm-hmm. having dense plasma, not, not just vacuum tubes, plasma tubes that he had to keep ionized. This was an inventor, very famous inventor. He had the most well-witnessed and documented free energy device probably in existence for history as far as the witnesses have observed it. And the name of that inventor was Thomas Henry Moray. Oh, my. And, and his last name is identically spelled to my first name. <laughs> Your first You know, years ago when I encountered you for the first time, I remembered the other Moray, and I thought, isn't it interesting, these two guys looking almost at the same thing through opposite ends of the telescope, and they both have the same crossover name. One is the first, and one is the weird, very weird, weird. We would call well, that a was... hyperdimensional resonance. <laughs> Uh, was an amazing synchronicity. It was the most uh, synchronistic event in, in my life, I believe, as ni- summer of 1975 or 76. Did he ever been, work with Tesla? He knew of Tesla, but I do not believe he worked directly of Tesla. He, because he was, Tesla is supposed to have had a car. I think it was a Pierce Arrow he converted to a free energy device. And, and I, I've heard rumors somewhere, I'm trying to remember, but he you basically built it on the Moray technology. At least that's what I think I remember. I've heard a number of stories like that. I do not know if they're true. Mm. Uh, I think an author, Matthews, wrote a book like that, got very popular. But I don't know if it's true or if it's true or not. But this synchronistic event where I am before I learned of T. Henry Moray, this is in the 75, 76 timeframe, uh, I, I'm proposing the, the zero-point energy and, and the interaction with these plasmas is, is, is a key to tapping the energy. And then Christopher Bird gives me the book, The Sea of Energy in Which the Earth Floats, and when I, by T. Henry Moray. And when I saw his name, it was like I got hit between the eyes by a proverbial two by four. <laughs> it was like, pay and attention. Said, said, ding, 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 uh, pay attention. Now my attention. I, I was, it was incredible. And frankly, it's been magical ever since that, that as, I, as I interact with people, the right people show up all the time with the right ideas. You, you know, Maury, that, that, that's, almost, that's almost metaphysical. It's almost like God wrote you this big message, pay attention to this guy because, by the way, I put his name on what you're supposed to pay attention to. Oh, uh, it was loud and clear. I knew at that point I, I would have to produce zero-point energy. And, and I said, that's what I'm writing my Ph.D. thesis on. And, and uh, of course, at the university, he says, well, nobody know, understands that. We never heard of that. And, and just then Irene invited me out. And I says, well... I've done the coursework. We just got to do the experiments. What, what's the problem? I'll just go out to Utah and we'll, we'll do the experiments and I'll come home with a free energy machine. <laughs> <laughs> Seems simple, doesn't it? Right? Oh, it sounds so simple. If it's that simple, why hasn't it been done, you know, like in the last century? So what happened uh, with, with, with uh, T. Henry Moray and his experiments that they disappeared from history? It was smashed. 
the machine was smashed. What? Um, more, you mean under, sabotage? Oh, literally by the investigator. Took a hammer and smashed the tubes. Destroyed the machine. He was, he was a plant to actually disrupt it. Wait, wait, you mean someone was planted in Moray's laboratory because there was a lot of kind of loose associations of people working together in those years. Right, he was portraying to be a member of the Rural Electrification Agency that that wanted to develop that invention for uh, power in the West. So Moray was completely tricked by by becoming, uh, by working with them. So wait a minute, this guy comes in claiming to be, you know, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you, which of course is a... An oxymoron, and right. and he smashes Moray's experiment. Why didn't Henry Moray rebuild? Oh, they tried, but the th- the the threats were too big. They uh, Moray had uh, assassination attempts, threats. He had oh, to put bulletproof my. glass on on his cars. He even had a gunfight in the lab, and it turns out he wounded the people raiding the lab, and he got wounded too. Uh, he had. Uh, John Moray, his son, I did interact with, uh, and he said his dad was a pretty good shot. He practiced with his pistol to protect himself. But they were under suppression, basically, and that's the short answer to why haven't anything been developed, because over the years I've seen marvelous things, only to find the inventors disappear or refuse to uh, participate ever again. Typically threatened, and they will go silent and never participate again. And so that, to me, is the real problem. Because if you just let the, left the inventors alone, various things would be discovered and rediscovered. So basically you're saying that there is an organized force, a political, whatever you want to call it, that has been stamping out burning ducks. Every time an inventor stumbles on being able to tap into the torsion field, the zero point, whatever, he's either the equipment is smashed, he is threatened, he is bankrupted, he is attacked, he is basically taken out because somebody does not want this energy source available to humanity, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. All right, hold it there. We are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Maury King, who shares the same first name with the very famous inventor of zero-point energy transformation, T. Henry Moray, uh, of many, many decades ago. And, I mean, this is going to kind of go in interesting directions. So everyone... Stay where you are. Uh, You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show, during the show, 
and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.